You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. We are here to discuss Candyman, which just came out in 2021 and was directed by Nia DaCosta. I think I made a mistake. I brought him back. Candyman isn't real! Something's happening to me. He had a purpose for you. To be another one of his terrible stories. I guess he found me. I am the writing on the wall. The sweet smell of blood. It stars Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, Tiona Paris, Coleman Domingo, Nathan Stewart-Jarrett, and Vanessa Williams. The genre would be mystery horror. Now, even though I have zero intention of saying his name five times in front of any reflective surface, I have to admit that for most of this film's 90-minute runtime, it had me quite hypnotized. Nia DaCosta has directed a gorgeous-looking horror fable, which lays out its message very broadly at times, but still delivers as creepy generally scary entertainment. And I'll say this up front. To fully appreciate this film, it genuinely helps to have seen the original Candyman movie from 1992, as this very much builds on that film's story. For the record, I really like the original film, and it was nice to revisit it just a couple of days before seeing this in theaters. It also pleases me to say that this is as strong overall as the 92 movie, though possibly not quite as scary. Overall, Neither film is actually a conventional horror film, if I'm being honest, but I would say the first film had at least a more fleshed-out main protagonist. This is a story about a woman named Helen Lyle. She was a grad student, a white grad student, doing her thesis on the urban legends of Cabrini Green. For research, she came down to Cabrini a few times, you know, asking questions, taking pictures of graffiti, people. And then, one day, she just snaps. She beheaded a Rottweiler. By the time the police show up, she's in one of the apartments doing snow angels in a pool of blood. Okay. Bullshit. <laughs> bullshit. It's no way. She killed a Rottweiler? Yeah, this is extra even for you. There are articles written about this. Look it up. Still, Yahya Abdul Mateen II and Tayona Paris are very good as our co leads, Anthony and Brianna. They are an upwardly mobile artist couple, well, he's the artist, and she's more of an art curator, living in a swanky area just north of downtown Chicago. I want to say the River North area, or maybe Lincoln Park. I'm not sure, but as someone who had lived in and near Chicago for almost 20 plus years, I did find it really cool to see so many familiar locations used in this film, especially how some are utilized really well to appear foreboding. And foreboding is the vibe that DaCosta is clearly going for here. 
We see it right from the opening credits where the camera swoops up in the air between the skyscrapers of Chicago, surrounded by fog, with a creepy synth score from Robert Lowe and stark visuals thanks to director of photography John Gulisirian, if I'm pronouncing it right. Now, I haven't seen or heard much from either of these guys before, and I look forward to more because they are both very effective. Now, I don't want to be that guy because the term Kubrickian, referring to, you know, films like Stanley Kubrick, the term Kubrickian has been so overused by this point. And hey, just as an example, I love the movie Inception, but that film was not remotely Kubrickian. But here, it actually really applies, probably not in a way that I've seen from a modern film since One Hour Photo, which came out just under 20 years ago. Everything feels cold and uneasy and very clearly lit, also usually center frame. There's one moment I will try not to spoil, but let's just say that we see someone brutally murdered in a pretty novel way, at least novel in the way it's shot, also making good use of Chicago's architecture. This shot might come off as a bit show-offy in how it's filmed, but damn if it didn't still work for me. Now about the overall story. I'm not looking to spoil that either, but let's just say that our main couple eventually becomes very much involved with the, quote, return of Candyman to this area in Chicago which is actually pretty close to the Cabrini-Green location where most of the first film was set. Have you guys heard of Candyman? Okay, ready? Candyman. 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 Not today. Not today. Two more times. Candyman. One more. Candyman. Well, we're still alive, so. Strange things start happening. People are brutally murdered. There's some body horror. And there's also a good amount of social commentary relating to gentrification, police brutality, racial injustice, and cultural appropriation. The original film also had its share of social commentary as well though I would say that it was done with more subtlety the first time around. And that brings me to the climax and conclusion of this movie. I liked it as it does pack a genuine punch. DaCosta, with co-writer Jordan Peele, they clearly have a point of view with these characters, and they follow that to a logical, satisfying conclusion within the world they have expanded upon for this sequel. My main issue is that I could have used a bit more to be developed before we actually got there. As I said before, Mateen and Paris are both very good as is Coleman Domingo in now his second batshit performance of the year after just having him seen in the film Zola recently. Coleman Domingo plays Burke, who's a local who grew up in Cabrini-Green and had his own personal experience with the Candyman legend growing up. For me, Candyman was a guy named Sherman Fields. He had a hook for a hand. Neighborhood character used to stand out there and hand out sweets to us when I was a kid. One October... A razor blade shows up in a little white girl's Halloween candy. And one day, I saw myself. He'd been hiding in the walls. That's when I saw the true face of fear. But our main characters start to feel like they have a bit less agency as things ramp up. 
This kind of reminded me of my issues with the third acts of both of Ari Aster's recent horror films, the films Midsummer and Hereditary. Now, both of these films are beloved by both cinephiles and horror fans. Ari Aster has kind of become a brand name unto himself. And I could see the craft in both of these films. But at the end of the day, for Midsummer and Hereditary, I just found both of them to truly weaken in their third acts, thanks to an overemphasis on the director's part to linger in all this creepy imagery that he obviously painstakingly went to a lot of effort to present us with. And seriously, I think Ari Aster is a very talented director. But man, does he need an editor. And he needs it badly. As the last 40 minutes of each of those films, they just provide a masterclass in how to methodically drain all the tension out of a promising premise. Now, fortunately, that's not the case with Candyman. There's a lot of amazing imagery, but it's not nearly as drawn out. It's much more well-edited. And actually, in the case of Candyman, honestly, I could have used another 10 minutes, at least, to better understand the personal journey that both Anthony and Brianna take. It doesn't prevent the film from achieving what it sets out to do, but it robs these characters a little bit, and it keeps this film from being the true genre masterpiece that it really could have been. As it stands overall, Candyman is a very good movie, and DaCosta is a director I look forward to seeing much more from. And that brings me to my first category. That would be Best Needle Drop which is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Robert Lowe orchestrates a very effective score throughout this film. Though it doesn't have much in the way of a melody or repeating theme, but it's much more hypnotic, and that generally works in building the atmosphere that this film is going for. However, what most dazzled me was playing over the gorgeously shot closing credits, which are recounting past events involving Candyman, all told through the spooky use of light puppets, and over this closing credit sequence, we hear a slight update of the original main theme from the 1992 film. It was called Helen's Theme, and it was written by and composed by Philip Glass. And it is just a beautiful, melancholy piece of music. That brings me to the next category, which would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II is one of those promising young actors who's been popping up in a lot of big stuff recently. He was in Aquaman. He was in the recent Watchmen series on HBO. He was in the movie Us. And apparently he stars in the new Matrix sequel that's coming out in a few months, where he plays a young Morpheus. So the dude's got presence, and he's got acting chops for sure, which he demonstrates in this film as well at least for the first half. For the first half, we watch the torment, fear, and exhilaration that his Anthony experiences as a painter who has suddenly found inspiration from the legend of Candyman. Of course, we see how his fixation on Candyman overtakes him, but only to a point. He's disappointingly given less to do as the film progresses. Now, we do see some very convincing physical acting on his part as he starts to physically transform, but really none of the pathos which would come with it. 
Now, what I'm talking about is Jeff Goldblum and The Fly, Charlto Copley in District 9. These were performances where you saw somebody physically transform and you saw the mental anguish they went through as that happened. There was the potential for something genuinely affecting along the lines of those performances. But Mateen is just not utilized that way. And it felt like a genuine missed opportunity. And the legend is, if you say his name five times while looking in the mirror, he appears in the reflection and kills you. So I thought that we could. <laughs> what did you think? Summon him. <laughs> Hell no. No. Candyman. Anthony. Candyman. Anthony, no. Candyman. Stop. Stop it. Candyman. Stop it. Okay. You better not do okay, that. Okay, okay, okay. Candyman. That brings me to the trailer moment. The trailer moment is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now, I kind of alluded to this moment in the film earlier, and I still don't want to completely spoil it, as this film just came out. But wow. Let's just say that as we are looking outside into a window, we see something brutal happen, and then the camera starts to pull away. But what's even more startling is to see it from a distance as the camera pans out further and further away. And we see how tragically insignificant it all starts to seem as it just kind of blends into everything else we see in the distance. I know I'm being vague here, but trust me on this. It's pretty amazing to see. I don't know how they pulled off this shot so convincingly, but it's about as impressively crafted an image as anything else I've seen in a movie this year so far. And this moment serves a genuine dramatic purpose. I'll leave it at that. And that brings me to the final category, which would be MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Nia DaCosta is the real star of this film, of course. She had a genuinely twisted, if occasionally heavy-handed vision for this latest incarnation of the Candyman legend, and it comes through in every frame. She is more than respectful to the original film, and she pulls off some novel ways of referring to the events of it by basically treating it as mythology that is twisted and sometimes even misinterpreted over time. DaCosta clearly has a great eye for this kind of dark material, and unlike an Ariaster, she has the restraint to tell a tight story and to not allow it to get bogged down in imagery. Which, to be fair to Aster, if I'm being fair, this is a common issue with a lot of up-and-coming filmmakers. They have the chops to show something off, so they want to show it off. I get it. But you still want efficiency in storytelling, and she does that. Now, this was only her second feature film, and her first with a pretty decent budget. It's an impressive piece of filmmaking with a lot of confidence behind it. Now, I do wish her writing with Jordan Peele was a bit more fleshed out for our two main characters, but as an overall mood piece meant to elicit feelings, this really stuck the landing for me, and I highly anticipate whatever she does next. My rating for Candyman 2021 would be four stars out of five. This is a strong film, and right now it's only playing in theaters, and I would highly advise that you see it. I think it really lends itself to the theater experience. And that ends another reflective review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.